Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Sense. I'm your host, and today we're continuing the conversation of adapt versus address, but we have a little something different for you all in store today. This week's episode features two industry expert interviews from Mr. Adam Hovde and Mr. Byron Crump, who teach AP Environmental Science and AP Macroeconomics, respectively. Okay, enough chit-chatting. Let's get on with the episode already. Welcome to Sustainable Sense, where we invest in climate defense. You're in for our hot take on all things money, markets, and the environment. So today's episode is about whether we adapt to or address climate change, which are two different methods for going about this. So, of course, it's a hot topic in today's society. So do you consider it more important to adapt to climate change or actually be solving climate change? I believe we need both because to solve climate change, we are going to have to adapt along the way, but also we need to solve climate change because it's one of the the scariest things that's happening on the planet right Mm -hmm. now. But along the way, we're going to have to adapt before we solve it Mm -hmm. to where we can, because we're going to be adapting. A lot of the adaptations we're going to make are going to be solutions also to our problems Mm -hmm. because we're all to stop CO2 emissions. We're going to have to adapt to not creating solid CO2 emissions, but along the way, it's going to be baby steps Mm -hmm. to get to that because we can't just cut it off completely. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to make steps to get to that. We're going to have to do both. Yeah. So what would you consider like these adaptation strategies that you're mentioning? Like what are the steps that we can take? Uh, one of the biggest ones we have is CO2 emissions mm-hmm. and getting because of the amount of CO2 emissions that we've put into the atmosphere since uh, the Industrial Revolution. Um, we've got all this fossilized carbon that was in the ground that's now in the modern carbon cycle that photosynthesis can't keep up with what we're putting out there. So we need to slow down, if not stop. Well, there's no way we can stop the amount of carbon dioxide, uh, putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because we breathe and photosynthesis needs it, but the amount of fossilized carbon that we're putting in the atmosphere needs to stop or slow down. And so we need uh, alternate fuel sources because we were using coal to power our power plants, but in the United States, we've moved more towards natural gas, but that doesn't mean every country has done that. We we use coal because it's easy to get Mm -hmm. and easy to use and cheap to use, but we need to move to alternative fuel sources Mm -hmm. to slow down uh, the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere. That's just one front of this because there's many fronts that need to be addressed, but that's the main one that we talk about because the sheer amount of carbon dioxide. Well, you know, the problem is we're stuck between politically between the two extremes, the people who want to ignore everything and then the ones that can't admit that, that something's going on. Um, my problem when you start talking about the government and policies and stuff is the government's main tools to try to motivate people are taxation and subsidies mm-hmm. and they're misused tools often and they have good intentions. But one of my big problems is I'm a big car hobbyist guy and the electric cars, for example, um, they've had to subsidize those since the beginning. And the problem with that, that I have is something's a good idea. It usually can kind of sell itself now without the government kind of pushing they wouldn't probably make the leaps and bounds they've done now, but everyone's expecting change overnight, and mm-hmm. that seems to be the biggest problem. Okay. So how would you get people, I guess, psychologically shift from something they've been doing for so long into a new thing that's being introduced to the market? That's a really, really good question because people 
only do things that are easier. Mm -hmm. They don't do things that are harder. If it makes their life harder to do, they generally don't do it. Yeah. Every time we have a technological advancement for our species, it usually means something bad for other species on the planet mm -hmm. because we're always making our lives easier and the other lives harder on mm -hmm. other species on the planet by doing this. We need to have a shift in the paradigm of how we think because we're always thinking just of ourselves and what mm -hmm. makes our lives easier. And we have to have that paradigm shift to where what is best, not necessarily just for us, but mm -hmm. also for our children, our children's children in the future. What are we going to leave for them okay. in the future? Yeah. So from an economic perspective, um, how are industries and job markets affected by doing things like this? Which companies are benefited? Which ones can uh, have some risks with the new adaptation measures we're placing out? Um, businesses are in the business to make money. Mm -hmm. They're always in the business to make money. And if it doesn't make them money, they won't do it. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure that what adaptations we're using will allow them to make money. We have a lot of industries that produce carbon dioxide. A lot of industries mm -hmm. do. Um, and so they're, they have lobbied against a lot mm -hmm. of these changes that we want to implement because their industry does produce carbon dioxide and a lot of the laws that we pass are hindering them to make money. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard for us to say, don't do this because it's cutting your bottom line, yeah. but we are trying to pass laws that will help future generations. And mm -hmm. so a lot of times it's hard to sh see that line where we cut costs mm -hmm. uh, of companies because they want to make money. Right. And we're making it harder for them to make money. And so they lobby against these things, mm -hmm. even if the paradigm shift needs us to do that. Okay. So on, kind of on that note, so have you heard of the carbon dividend or the cash back um, policy that's being trying to be implemented into Congress? There's, like, there's been a lot of yeah. different versions mm -hmm. of that brought in. And a lot of times it's called a carbon tax. Yeah. A lot of times it's, it's got different wording mm -hmm. uh, for this. And one of the things that comes with the carbon tax is, let's say that I'm X company that I don't use all of the carbon that I said I would use in a year. Yeah. I could sell it to another company right. to uh, basically put the, put, they can use my carbon to put into the atmosphere and stuff like that. It's a adaptation. Basically, it's not a stopgap because basically we're still putting limits on this, but also how do you measure who does that? How do you right. measure how much carbon dioxide a company is putting in the, in the atmosphere? Mm -hmm. it, we, we can't monitor right now how much is going into the atmosphere to a very specific degree because mm -hmm. it's everywhere. Yeah. And how do I know that the carbon is coming from this company and not this other company? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to monitor. And that's one of the reasons why it hardly ever passes mm -hmm. because who is monitoring this and who is saying, yes, you can and you can't. Okay, that's true. Well, I mean, one thing is anytime you enact any kind of policy, it causes a lot of times it's going to cause price levels to go up, job losses, just depends on what we're talking about. And when you start affecting people like that, they're going to turn their ears away mm -hmm. from a problem. Um, Adam Smith kind of had it right. We only do stuff if there's any, something in it for us. And when you kind of force feed things down people's throats, they tend to rebel and ignore and dig in their heels and stuff. Um, job creation from it. There's already been a lot of jobs created and stuff. Uh, adapting to it, I think that probably might be one of our biggest problems because um, going back to the car thing, uh, everyone wants everything instantly. And so they've pushed for these electric cars and like one of the problems that comes up, sorry for the noise in the background, the problems that's come up is there's there are massive problems with electric cars. 
Um, I can't remember if it's the Volt or the Bolt, but one of the first General Motors electric cars, they were selling big numbers. They discontinued making that battery. And so if you need a replacement battery, it's 30 grand. Mm -hmm. And so basically what they've kind of created with electric cars are cars that are going to be completely disposable. Um, they're not going to be around probably like my 1969 Roadrunner. And so is that contributing to the problem when you're going to start putting those cars in the dumps and everything? But anytime you've got new technology and stuff, it's going to open up the door to new products, new jobs, new ways of thinking. We just got to find the right incentives. Okay. And um, what are some potential like drawbacks or limitations relying solely on these adaptation strategies, these smaller steps without addressing the root causes of climate change? Um, the problems are if we have to solve the problem, but we have to make adaptations along the way. Um, a lot of times, whenever you get something that has multiple steps to it, people won't follow through with all the steps mm -hmm. because it's too much for them to do. They're not going to remember to do it. They yeah. won't follow through with all the steps. If we can come up with something that's smaller steps to get there, or we make it something that they want to do, that will, that will play a lot onto whether people will do it or not. Mm -hmm. Again, we don't do things that are harder. We have to make it easy to do. Yeah. And if it's not easy to do, we don't do it. Mm -hmm. we, never, we never have, we never will. Mm -hmm. And also, if it's more costly to us, we won't do it. Mm -hmm. If it costs more money or it costs more of our time, we won't do it uh, because we're too fast-paced of a society now. Uh -huh. And so if we don't get all the way to fixing our problem, it's just going to stay a problem. Mm -hmm. But the adaptations give us, at times, it's hope that we're fixing the problem, but at times it might not be enough to fix the problem. Yeah. So um, from your knowledge, what are some key examples that have like countries have passed to adapt to the impacts of climate change? Uh, in Europe, a lot of countries, France is one of them, has moved more towards nuclear energy uh, and greener energy sources, whether it be solar or wind or something like that. Germany's doing it also. Australia is a big leader in, in this too. The United States <clears throat> isn't really on the forefront of this. Uh, we have we are developing, but other countries are developing more than we are. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of countries are some goals are by 2030, and a lot of countries in Europe are, uh, namely France and Germany, are the two that pop in my head. But I know there's others also that by 2050 they're they're trying to get out of all fossil fuels mm -hmm. uh, to create energy for themselves and try and go to all either not more sustainable uses of energy. Mm -hmm. Okay. The problem is, is you know you can it depends on on you know, this is when you start getting into the politics and economics and the motivations and stuff, because, you know, you can have China basically turn themselves into an agricultural power. And then overnight, they, you know, very quickly, they had their shift to uh, becoming an industrial power. But at the same time, they did that during a time period when the weather was bad and they had famine and was it up to 60 million people died because of that? You know, um, command systems can get things done quickly, but command systems usually there's a lot of problems with them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, when you start getting into that, you've got to dangle the carrot in front of the people. You know, you've got to get people on board with mm -hmm. stuff. And you've got to find, and that's, it's not as easy as it sounds, and it's more complicated than I make it, but mm -hmm. you've got to get the combination of incentives and payoffs and things correct for people mm -hmm. and then they don't even they won't even question it at that point yeah. they'll just go along with it um looking in history you know 
when we got everyone on board for the space program, for example, everybody was on board with that. And the private sector jumped in. The government led the way with spending. Government activity always increases, you know, aggregate demand greatly and all that kind of stuff. Um, but getting everyone was on board with that, with the patriotism and stuff. Does that stuff exist in today's world like it did in the 1960s? Um, you know, the government, it's, it's really kind of interesting when you bring that up because, I mean, there's a lot of people that want to go the complete command approach and mandate and dictate things by law and take away what people would say their rights and their freedoms to force this down. And that's going to cause resentment and problems. And then if you're just kind of gently prodding the problem, it doesn't solve it either. Um, but, you know, throughout history, when there's been a will and you got everyone on board, there's been great success. You can look at the war effort in World War II. Uh, you can look at various things like that, but you know, the sad truth of it too, when you look out through human history, which was more successful, the Roman Republic or the Roman empire, um, you know, so mixing the policies and getting it right. I mean, it's, it's just gonna, it's gonna take the perfect combination of those things. I may not even be answering your question at this okay. point. So on the other hand, what does solving climate change mean to you and what are the primary goals and outcomes like associated with this approach? Mm, that's a big question. Solving climate change is, I don't think that there's a, I don't think if I have a one thing because there's so many fronts of climate change, if we're just going to go with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we need to cut back how much we put in the atmosphere and let our atmosphere basically clean itself mm -hmm. because it will, because we have photosynthesis, cellular respiration, mm -hmm. the whole process for that. The other thing is, is we have methane going in the atmosphere. We have uh, PMs, part, uh, particulate matter going in the atmospheres. We have all these different um, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that we've been putting in for so many years. We need those to clean themselves out. And to do that is going to take time. And time is something that we, as humans, look at as is something that we just use. We use time, but we never seem to have enough time. Uh, one of the examples of this, of being able to fix problems, happened with our ozone layer that we have in the stratosphere. Uh, there was an article, I can't remember the name of the article that I was reading like a year and a half ago. Uh, we'd used so many chlorofluorocarbons early in the 50s and 60s and I guess even back to the 40s uh, into the atmosphere. And the chlorine molecules or the chlorine atoms that were breaking off from, the, from there were basically breaking down ozone in the stratosphere. Well, we outlawed using as many CFCs. We saw the problem that was causing by creating these holes in the atmosphere, which let more UV radiation through, which we don't need because that's one of the things that gives us skin cancer and creates it hotter on the planet. And in cutting back in the amount of CFCs that we used, and so they're not going into the atmosphere, the ozone holes that we have are now closing because it creates more ozone. That's what it does. And they said by the year 2050, if we keep doing what we're doing, the holes that we have in the ozone layer could be gone. So we are doing steps. We can take steps to fix things, but it's not a fast process. Okay. It takes multiple generations at times to fix something that we've broken. Mm -hmm. So kind of tying back to what you said earlier, um, it takes time and like a lot of money. Like people argued that it's not worth it considering the initial cost of all these measures. So how can like people, like organizations and economies kind of overcome these challenges and transition smoothly? Well, this is where you have to define what worth is. Is it worth having clean air for our kids mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. We only have about 50 years of oil left. Is mm -hmm. it worth saving that oil? Mm -hmm. We only we have 200 years of coal left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can go back to that, but coal is probably is worse for us to use than oil is, which mm -hmm. we, we have natural gas out there that we can use still too. We don't have a whole lot of oil uh, that we can use. 
and gasoline that comes from oil. So we have to find other ways to use that. So worth is going to be in the eye of the beholder. And is it worth your children, your grandchildren to be able to use these resources? Because a lot of them are going to be gone by the time they get here yeah. or short to be gone. And mm -hmm. what happens economically to the price of these resources as they become more sparse, mm -hmm. they're going to go up. And so is worth being paying the money now to solve, to help solve mm -hmm. the problem or pay the money later when those resources become very expensive. Yeah. So how are you, how would you like plan on, I guess, telling the masses that like making sure that the defining worth in the future is more important than like the small term or the short term impacts of these things. And that's, that's a really good question because we are so short sighted in what we see. It's got to be right in front of us for us to mm -hmm. see it. And if it's not in front of us, we generally ignore it. Yeah. Uh, where we see the data, we see data of what is in our atmosphere and the warming and the oceans and the melting ice caps and all the stuff that's out there. And we see it, but it doesn't directly impact us as right. people. We don't actually see it. We just see that it is happening and mm -hmm. it's not doing anything really to change our lives right now. And so we don't see it as worth. Mm -hmm. We see it as something, oh, we, can, we still have time to fix this. It's down mm -hmm. the future. But it's not as far down the future as many of us think it is because in our lifetimes now, we're going to see shortages of these resources because of the choices that we've made over the last 150 years. Mm -hmm. But again, that's going to be whenever you call something worth, is it worth doing it now? It, you've got to have it impact you now, but mm -hmm. a lot of people don't see that impact yet. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, they can, the government can lead the way on this. It's kind of like with the space program and stuff. They supported it and people got on board and there was windfalls from it and everything. They're going to have to try. I mean, I don't really have the answer for it, but they're going to have to find the right incentives to get people and corporations and companies on board because, you know, I tend to lean to be a, a capitalist. <laughs> so that, that's sometimes a flag for people, but nothing I can't stand more than is, is wasteful capitalism. Like when I worked mm -hmm. part time for a garbage bag company, they had those little plastic pellets that they brought in and they were everywhere on the ground. And that's, and it, even though I wasn't even concerned with the environment, I knew that wasn't good for the environment having these pellets everywhere. And every one of those pellets on the ground is profit lost. Mm -hmm. So that's like the worst kind of capitalism when you're sloppy and you cost yourself mm -hmm. pennies that add up over time. So a lot of the time chains comes from organizations and governments. So how can we, I guess, incentivize them and present potential benefits of them implementing these policies that can help us in the future? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a tough question too, because we have lobbyists in the United States mm -hmm. and a lot of the very powerful lobbyists and the lobbyists that are paid a lot of money are for those to keep carbon dioxide mm -hmm. going in the atmosphere and stuff like that. So I'm not saying that we need to get rid of lobbyists or anything like that. We just need to limit the amount of influence these lobbyists can have uh, with that. But the thing is, is we can always subsidize companies that are trying to come up with cleaner energy sources, uh, give them money and make policies. Mm -hmm. We don't need to necessarily go against those other companies that are producing carbon dioxide and stuff like that. Cause many of our energy companies have really good, they're putting research into cleaner energy. They see that uh, oil is running out. They see all of this is happening, but they are also researching other ways to create energy for ourselves, but it's uh, a fraction of the amount of money mm -hmm. that they make goes into researching this. Yeah. But I don't know, it's going to be really, really hard to convince the world because you're going to have to convince everybody to do this because mm -hmm. let's say that the United States does this, but European countries don't. Well, it's going to hurt economically us in the United States, mm -hmm. but not Europe. 
So our GDP will take a hit where your Europeans GDP might not take a hit. And so we're going to have to have everybody do it. Mm -hmm. And we can't get two cities in Texas to do the same thing. We can't get two states to agree on two things. Mm -hmm. We got to get the whole world to agree to do everything. But that doesn't mean we don't try it. We don't mm -hmm. do it because we have to take the steps and we have to get everybody on board to make these changes yeah. or it's not going to happen. So how would you, I guess, make sure that all these different um, countries are kind of putting in efforts and collaborating together? Because all these, you know, climate conversations and climate conferences, they're just more of like uh, talking about what we can do. But how do you make sure that like tangible solutions are implemented? I d that's almost an impossible question to ask. I can't, we can't make countries do things. We yeah. can't, we can vote in, in the United States, we can vote in people that agree with us mm -hmm. and vote in how we want things done. And that's in our country how it has to be. But we have other countries that have, you don't vote. People just take office and they also have to get involved. And when we have the, uh, our different meetings about the uh, environment and other countries get together, they can talk all they want, but they can't really pass a policy mm -hmm. Because even in the United States, let's say that Biden goes to one of these and he says, hey, we're going to do this. He still has to get it through the House and mm -hmm. the Senate and they have to ratify and say that, yeah, yeah we're going to do this. So it's not just his decision. It's going to be our whole government's mm -hmm. decision to do it. And other than you'd have parliament over in Europe and you'd have all you'd have all these different things that have to go along. They can agree to do something, but that's just going to be lip service because they have it take it back to their countries mm -hmm. and their countries have to say, yeah, we will do that. Yeah. So kind of tying back to that, how can we educate and spread awareness about the implications of these kind of things so people are more aware about um, what will happen in the future? The Internet is a great source of mm -hmm. information and misinformation. You need to go to trustworthy sites and don't don't. This is the biggest thing. Don't get your news source from one source ever. Your news should come from multiple sources. Mm -hmm. Uh, you should hear news from around the world. Don't just look at news in the United States. Look at news in Great Britain. Look at news in Asia. Look at news in Australia. Look at news in the Middle East. You need multiple sources of where you get your news and also where you get your scientific news. Mm -hmm. Your scientific news should not come from one source. Anything that you hear, has it been collaborated on by mm -hmm. other sources? Has it been proven? Mm -hmm. Have others been able to test the data to see if it's right? And so there's all kinds of stuff that you need to check and make sure and don't just take everything that's said to you, even in science, at face value. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of science publications that are not scientific. They're just marketing research that yeah. they put out there that says that it's science. Mm -hmm. And so make sure that the science that you do believe has been researched and tested okay, by so others. To check that, like how would you check for the credibility of these sources? Uh, you, that's depending on the area you're looking at. We have government agencies. We have private agencies that do this and they have these in other countries too mm -hmm. and see if other countries uh, uh, data say the same thing. Again, I don't think, I can't think of any off the top of my head uh, for you to look at, but always look at your sources mm -hmm. and see if other sources say the same thing or are they all okay. citing the same one source? Okay. Uh, it definitely, the message needs to be mm -hmm. put out there, but it needs to be put out there in a different way than it has been. Okay. Like I said, it's gotta be more middle of the road, more common sense, more, um, this is what's going on. Be aware of it. Um, things have got to change. We can't change it overnight, but we've got to change our ways and stuff. Screaming at people and in the way the message has been delivered for a while, it's turned, I mean, to be honest, 
one of the problems I've seen with the environmental movement is some of the people they've rallied around and stuff are so polarizing and stuff. It's turned people off. And, it, mm -hmm. and it's not even about the issue. It becomes about the people, like the hatred of a, mm -hmm. a certain individual, you know, you, how dare you? And, you know, some people just did not react well mm -hmm. to that. And then, and then it's no longer about the environment at that point. It's about the politics and the people. And, and so then the problem falls to the wayside again. Okay. Is there any advice you have for individuals and consumers to um, promote a more sustainable environment? Um, the biggest thing is we've been labeled as the, the throwaway generation, the disposable generation, because everything we buy is prepackaged. Mm -hmm. We buy something, we use it, we throw it away. We buy something, we use it, we throw it away. My biggest thing is saying buy things in bulk, use them in bulk, slow down. Um, see what your one thing is. I talk about this with my students all the time in, in environmental science and environmental studies and stuff. Uh, there's a little slogan is, what is your one thing? You find one thing that you can change in your life probably to help the environment. And once that one thing becomes a new habit for you, you change to another one thing. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to find one thing because if you try and change multiple things in your life at one time, that usually ends up in failure. Mm -hmm. So tr if you can find one thing to change to more be environmentally friendly until it becomes a habit, and then find another one thing. Okay, thanks. Uh, the biggest incentive for the, the consumer mm -hmm. is the convenience of the product and the products advancing to the point where to people are gonna be excited about them, not mm -hmm. think about it, not worry about it. Um, it's gonna take the, the government to kind of dangle some money that direction even, you know, the government's gonna have to be involved in it because they're, the payoffs are not gonna be quick. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, funding cancer research and stuff i mean there's got to be funding there for these kind of things there's going to have there's got to be room for mistakes and failure and learning from the failure and and in today's world with the way they handle money and the way political programs and the way the government works and everything you know you never hear of a program dying you know like we don't need this anymore no everybody wants more and more and more uh we've got to understand that this is going to be a a trial and you know we're gonna have to test the waters we're gonna have to try things and some things are gonna work and some things aren't and people are gonna the government and, and industry and corporations and stuff they're gonna have to lead the way on this and like i said the consumer can get on board with this they can vote for people they can do various things but at the end of the day if it's not convenient for them it's not going to happen um, so kind of switching over to more like sustainable technologies, what do you think, or do you think green investing and impact investing in this case are um, useful and can help with these things? Oh man, I could play both sides of the fence on that one because there's been so many subsidies given to green companies, especially during the Obama administration. And like any time when you hand out money, you can't guarantee what a company is going to do with the money. Right. And, uh, you know, some of them were just pocketing the money and, ah, look at us. And then others were taking it serious. Um, that's the first thing that jumped out. What was the second part of the question? I'm sorry. Um, so do you consider green investing and impact investing um, efficient? I guess from a consumer point of view as well. Well, the consumers are never going to like anything until it's easy right. <laughs> and yeah. cheap. Um, you know, it's somebody's got to, somebody's going to stumble on something at some point, and it's going to be so good, it's going to sell itself, and it's going to change the world overnight. At least I hope that's what's going to happen. I just think it's odd that that things like everyone's scared to death of nuclear power because they don't want the reactor down the street and stuff. But that's obviously one of our best answers for power. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody wants to do it. Um, 
but the green technologies and stuff, some of them, unfortunately, like solar panels, they're kind of stuck. Um, it's a pretty costly investment to put them on a house still, and then eventually you can sell power back to the grid. But, you know, if they come up with a solar panel the size of my desk that runs the room, that would change the world instantly. And so technology has got to keep up to the expectations. And the thing that also kind of stands out to me that nobody wants to talk about is a lot of these technologies are, you are going to require rare earth minerals. Mm -hmm. And that's a major red flag problem because we're starting to run out of that stuff. And China is kind of like stockpiling it. And a lot of it we have to get from China and Africa and everything. And you want to talk about one of the biggest problems with technologies and stuff, all these phones and everything, they've got gold, they've got all mm -hmm. sorts of rare earth minerals. There's no way to recycle them. And so every time we throw away a phone, that's a big problem. You know, so, you know, so the green technologies, I mean, some of it's good, some of it's bad. It's just shifting through it and looking. You've got to, I don't think a lot of people are looking far sighted you know, looking really far down the road and looking at the trade-offs and the opportunity cost issues that are going to come up from it. Um, I mean, I mean, it's obviously I'm not the expert on this, but it's, it's interesting when you talk about it. Yeah. So what would you say would make these technologies more effective and easier, I guess, to use and more effective in solving their problem? Well, the key to all of this is they've got to figure out a way to make it convenient. Yeah. Um, if I run out of gas in a car, or I'm almost out of gas, I'm in and out of the gas station in minutes. Charging a car takes a significant amount of time. I had a really good friend. He leased two of the top-of-the-line Teslas, and he and his wife were older, but they, you know, oh, they, you know, let's get one of these. They're cool, you know, kind of hot thing to have, all that kind of stuff. And he said the biggest problem for him and why he and his wife, when the lease was over, went back to getting, like, Escalades, big gas-burning Escalades, was that... Uh, the nervousness you have of running out of power. Yeah. Um, the, how many times they went to one of the places that the car directed them to and it didn't exist or it was broken or vandalized. So then the anxiety would kick in. And Motor Trend, interestingly enough, if you care that much about this, just did an article where they purposely ran one of, I think it was the Rivian truck completely of no, bound to no charge. And when they did that, that truck tried, that vehicle tried to tell them, you know, do everything with the technology to tell them you're getting close. This is, you got to take care of this. But when it locked up, you, you had to have a pallet jack to move it and stuff. And so it's got, it, you know, as, as crazy as that sounds, it's got to be to where people don't have to give it any thought and they don't have any anxiety. And people that buy electric cars right now have that anxiety mm -hmm. of where's my next charge. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also kind of like a balance between like efficiency and then time and seeing how like the market just takes it. And I think that's what's like important to consider here. So, yeah. um, so can you discuss like how financial decisions play a role in adaptation? So like what financial steps can people take to enhance their resilience to climate related challenges? Well, you know, a lot of people want to start talking about investing in the future and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's, you know, something that everyone promises, but do they ever go through it. And students have had me in the past always laugh because they can never figure out my political alignment because I don't like politicians in general. Um, but, uh, you know, basically the, it's, the government is going to have to lead the way because, and the companies are going to have to see the light and they're going to have to spend money on this and they're going to be really hesitant if there is no profit in the future or they don't, or, you know, they're not seeing re returns because they got to answer to investors and stuff. 
um, for the average person, you know, it's going to be like supporting causes through donations and stuff like that. I don't know, you know, because people talk about buying solar panels as an investment, is it? <laughs> you know, because of how long it takes to get something out of it. Um, people are getting, people, whether the, people just don't want to admit it a lot of times, they're guided by their pocketbook. And uh, it's really hard to get people uh, to invest in things or to believe in things, if I'm following your question correctly, uh, you know, unless they see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I guess how can we, like, encourage people to be, like, more future conscious and be a little bit more aware of their investing choices and where that money is going to go. The way the messages are being delivered in today's world is, to me, one of the biggest problems because you've got the deniers screaming and you've got the, we're all going to die tomorrow. Um, it needs to be calm, even-handed, true discussion. Is that possible in today's political world? I don't even know, but that's what it's going to take is people are going to have to, and we've got I mean, you have to be kind of a fool not to look out the window and see the damage being done. But at the same time, you can't mandate by X date, no like, no gas-burning cars can be in such and such city like L.A. or Paris. Um, they need to tone down the unrealistic expectations. Mm -hmm. And everything needs – and getting people to think long-term. This is going to be a long-term thing. This is mm -hmm. something that's going to take time. That's kind of like one of my things I always talk about in class, like the dealing with the government deficit. That's not something we can fix overnight. That's something they need to sit down and have like a 50-year plan for or something. And that's what this is going to require. But it's going to require one side admitting there is a problem. It's going to require the other side admitting that it can't be solved instantly. And you're not going to solve it by just force-feeding mandates down people. Um, the middle people are going to have to get on board. The middle of the road people are going to have to get on board on this, and the message has got to kind of start there if it's going to be successful, in my opinion. The yeah. two extremes are not going to work. Mm -hmm. So do you think the concept of divestment is more like efficient? So if people don't necessarily want to put their money somewhere, can they take it out? And do you think it's a little bit more efficient to like divest from fossil fuels, like for instance? Um, I think this... You know, like coal was really dirty, and we don't even really have a coal industry anymore. But to complete, I we can't really completely 100% abandon oil and natural gas, especially with the natural gas we have here. And I understand the problems with fracking and the open water things and all that kind of stuff. But um, it's going to take a combination of everything, and power is always going to be a dirty business. Um, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I mean, if you've ever seen one of those things where one of those wind turbines the seals broke on it and the liquid came out of it and the damage it did and all that stuff. It's, you know, we need to stop relying so much on one thing, but it's going to take a combination of everything. Right. And so uh, people almost want to stop, you know, we the coal industry was almost wiped out kind of almost overnight in some ways, which is really interesting. Approaching and attacking oil and natural gas like that, that level, the stuff, the green technologies, even when we get them working well, they're probably still not going to be enough because of the increasing populations and the demands and the reliance on technology and everything. It's going to take a combination of everything. And the one sad reality of it I think people ignore is, like I said, power is always going to be a dirty business, and there's never going to be a zero. There's The zero emissions thing I don't think is possible. Now, someone might that's smarter than me might say, oh, yes, it is or whatever, but it's going to take a combination mm -hmm. of everything. So that kind of concludes our interview. Do you have any last-minute words for our listeners today? Uh, study more economics.
<laughs> Thank you very much for having me on. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have a good semester. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our episode today and shout out to Mr. Havdi and Mr. Crump for this awesome interview. Stay tuned for our next episode where we are going to be featuring some of your voices and student opinions. And as usual, make sure to follow us on Sustainable Sense wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our Instagram at Sustainable Sense Podcast. If you have any questions, email us at sustainablesensepodcast at gmail.com and check out our new LinkedIn account. And as usual, invest your sense in climate defense.